Thanks, Joseph. Lovely to be here again, guys. And um, yeah, I, I'm just curious about how close I got to not making the cut that night. Uh, <laughs> it's probably time in our friendship that um, I did come clean there. I'm, I'm kind of okay with craft beer. I'm not that phased. My go-to is Hagen, which is kind of like the, just again, top tip straight off the bat. I think it's the best priced tastiest lager out there, mass-produced glory. Um, so I may not be back in November, that's all right. So how's everyone doing? You all right? How's summer? You know what I think is annoying is that there'll be someone, and you'll probably hear today, who just, like, nailed it this summer. Like, you went down south. Everywhere you went, the sun was shining. It was just like lollipops and unicorns everywhere you went. And it was just a delightful, refreshing summer. So God bless you, if that's you. We've got one or two people of those guys in our church. And I'm like, I just don't want to talk to you probably for a couple of months. And then maybe we'll get to the point where I'm cool with it. Because my summer was average. Like, we moved up from Christchurch. And before that, I'd lived in Wellington. So I'm used to average summers. Like Wellington and Christchurch is like just pretty average most summers. Then six years ago, we moved to the Hawke's Bay. And it was like oh, wow, this is amazing. It's like a summer. And then it's like, ooh, that's cool. Next summer was amazing. It was like another summer. And then after like four or five years, I was like, I can get my hopes up. I can actually get my hopes up that we're going to have a great summer. I can't wait. And uh, you guys probably used to this in Tauranga as well. And then it was like this summer, it was like, okay, any day now, any day now. All right, long-term feeling. Okay, we're going to get a little patch, then it will start, you know. And even yesterday I was talking to Joe, I was like, maybe just a late summer. Oh, another cyclone. Okay, so not this next couple of weeks. Cool. <sighs> and so I came out of summer, and there was a whole bunch of other things that um, made my summer a bit tricky. Um, and it's been really comforting talking to other people that have had a crap summer as well. There's something about group therapy that's really good. It's on to Caleb. It's like, how's summer? Average. I was like, thank you. Let's sit down. Let's have a chat. And then it's like, and then you start the year, and like many of you guys, I've got a young family, and I was like, Ugh, summer, I got a bit grumpy. And then it's like, and I'm like, oh, well, I like my normal routines. So like, we, you know, we go through that horrible phase of, I'm working from home, but I'm working because I've got a home office, and then the kids are still at home. It's just a nightmare. So I'm like, crap summer. I forgot that this is super stressful for a couple of weeks. Ah, they're back at school. And then they're back at school, and I was like, oh, Groundhog Day, sandwiches in the morning. <sighs> and then Joseph's like, would you come and talk to our church about your journey with depression? <laughs> I was like, it's a genius pastoral move. At this time of year, after that summer, let's talk about navigating depression, because if you haven't struggled with it in the past, you may be flirting with it now after that sort of summer. So uh, it's a bit of a privilege to, to share on the subject. It's a big one. It's a heavy one. Um, and the stats, uh, according to the 2018 sort of uh, well-being statistics, are that one in four New Zealand adults experience poor mental well-being. So, you know, there's a chunk of you in the room today, regardless of the fact that summer was super average, that just this is your experience. And also, uh, uh, depression, anxiety, these sorts of things affect, I think, all of us at some point in our life. Um, we have mates that go through this. Um, you know, I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I've just taken way too many funerals from suicide, where people just got so low and couldn't see a way out. 
So this stuff affects us really deeply. And it's affected my family line on my mother's side quite dramatically. My uh, grandmother, I never met my grandmother because she took her life after postnatal depression. Um, my uh, uncle took his life 10 years ago. Um, and my mum's been amazing at like kind of being a little, I think a bit of a combo breaker in terms of some of the stuff in our, in our family line and some of the depressive tendencies. But that doesn't mean I haven't struggled with this, which is why Joseph's asked me to come and bear my soul before you uh, this morning. Uh, I've definitely, uh, I know what it's like to have that black dog barking and barking loud. And I have had moments where I've been very low. And... Um, and I realise that there's a spectrum on this whole thing from, from manically, seriously depressed through to um, feeling a bit low, a bit flat. Um, but depression sucks, just up front, right? Sucks. And it's kind of like the thing about depression that really sucks is it's not like... Uh, before I kind of wrestled with this whole thing, I was like, oh, you just feel, like, down. But actually, like, when you're feeling pretty depressed, it's, like, not just down, you feel numb. You don't really feel anything. You feel detached. And it's just no way to live. It's a horrible, horrible thing to live with and to go through. So wherever you are on that spectrum, particularly if you are struggling, just grace and peace. Lots of love. I'm sorry. It does suck. Um, I read a book that I found helpful. I'm going to mention a couple my talk, but uh, this book called Finding Jesus in the Storm, The Spiritual Lives of Christians with Mental Health Challenges by a guy called John Swinton. And he said this, you can live authentically with depression. We need to find language to talk about depression that is spiritually meaningful for people rather than the falsities of happiness. False happiness is a terrifying thing if you're depressed because it is something you actually learn to mimic to survive. And if you start mimicking your spiritual life, then you're in real trouble. So thankfully, we've got this beautiful resource in our scriptures to help us um, engage with God deeply with how we're really doing. The Bible isn't like, everything is awesome. Well, like, <laughs> the world burns around you. It's no, it's like, there is this beautiful literature of people being brutally honest with God because they believe that God hears and sees and is deeply compassionate, and so they give God both barrels, which is lovely. Uh, for example, and there's so many examples, but literally it's a tiny handful of examples. Psalm 42 is brutal honesty. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? And then you've got like the suicidal guys, there's a bunch of those, which is cool. Elijah, I've had enough, Lord, take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. Jonah, now take my life, it's better for me to die than to live. Jeremiah, cursed be the day I was born. <laughs> Why did I ever come out of the womb to see this trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? I mean, like, again, pretty intense, <laughs> but uh, beautiful that it's in our holy book. And uh, they reckon about a third of the Psalms, uh, about 50 or so, are Psalms of lament, uh, cries of, for help coming out of pain. Um, Psalm 38 is an example. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. When was the last time you prayed like that? You know, that's, that's raw pain, you know. And you don't, you don't read that like an Anglican bishop 
Why are my longings like open before you, Lord? My sighing is, it's not as like, I'm longing to live. It's beautiful. The Psalms are a helpful bunch of prayers to help us express our sadness and pain and our anger, and it's in our holy books. So if we learn anything from the scriptures, it's that being honest with God, like brutally honest with God about how we're feeling is a really good idea. It's a wise thing to do. And there's two reasons for that. Firstly, it helps us keep our eyes on God through tricky patches. Um, I love that God would far rather have us messy than not have us at all. I just love that because I'm so messy. I'm really messy. And sometimes I want to like tidy up my mess and present myself all nice and polished before God. But like I go through the book and it's like he kind of gets pretty annoyed at people like that. Jesus seemed to get pretty bugged by people that, you know, tried to present the outside as nice and polished when inside they're rotting in a mess. Um, and so, um, you know, a classic example of this is like Peter walking on the water. Um, Jesus, you know, I presume most of you guys know the story, you know, so Peter, Jesus calls him out to the water and he's like, you yeah, boy, let's go, like, you know, and he's, like, and he's walking out the water, he's like, yeah, this is why they call me the rock, you know, and it's like, and then uh, he gets out there a bit and they're like, yeah, bro, uh, that's why they call you the rock, you're sinking, homie, like, you know, it's not going so good. Uh, and it's that classic thing, like, he starts off uh, having his eyes on Jesus, uh, and then it says, when he saw the wind and the waves, his focus shifted. Um, and, and what the Bible's constantly encouraging us to do is to not deny that there's a storm happening in our lives, but, but that we determine our reference point through that storm by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so that's the first thing it does when we engage with the Scriptures, particularly the Psalms, to help us... Here comes the cyclone. There it is. Hello. Oh, thank you, Jesus. What a blessing. <laughs> Get to drive home in the room. <laughs> How hard is my life? No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, so the first thing it does is it just helps us like to be to pour out our psalms before, like to get your journal and just to to write your own psalms during those painful times is some of the smartest things you can do. Wow. That's unreal. Isn't it nice being in here as well? Like, oh, I feel like schnoogly. Like this is a, anyway. And like sermons, some people struggle staying awake during a sermon. It just got so much trickier. So like, if you're having a tough time, you can have a holy nap. I won't be offended. Go for it. Okay, stay focused, Harvey. All right. Um, secondly, um, being deep, deeply honest with God helps us face our reality. Like being really honest with God helps us deal with our reality. And this is why this is so important. Psychiatrist Scott Peck, who wrote things like The Road Less Travel, those sorts of things, he said mental health is dedication to reality at all costs. Now, it sounds simple, but you've got to sit with that one. So, like, at its extreme, um, schizophrenia or whatever, that's a mind that has lost touch with reality. So health, like, having a healthy mind is dedication to reality at all costs. It may sound easy to do. It's one of the hardest things we ever have to do, to just accept our reality. This is my body. This is my story. This is my wound. This is my failure. This is what I've done. This is what I haven't done. This is my marriage. This is my singleness. This is my gifting. This is not. 
and on we go. It's one of the hardest things we can do because reality is actually quite tricky. But actually being brutally honest with God helps us to stay locked in to our reality. And as we do that, it actually, I think, is one of the most liberating, healing, and life-giving things that we will ever do with Jesus uh, to accept the reality of our lives with joy. One of my favorite songs, worship songs at the moment, um, is called Hope on the Horizon. There's not lots of songs of lament, um, but we've been singing this a little bit at our church from time to time. And, and some of the lyrics in the song say this, when your heart is ready to break, you've got empty hands and worn out faith, and when it feels like prayers have gone to waste, and the promise seems so far away. And I was like, shiggers, bro. Man, come here. Like, I'm depressed already, man. You don't have to love. Give me that. But I love, but again, psalms of lament are just brutally honest, but they always then lift their eyes to Jesus. And I love this. Lift up your eyes is the chorus. There's hope on the horizon. Oh, look to Christ. His kingdom is arriving. I love this line. So give him glory in the waiting and hold him to hope. And for me, those last couple of lines... As I've been praying about our time together and this talk in my journey, uh, that's my big prayer, is that for those of you going through times of depression yourself or uh, are affected because someone you love closely is going through this, is that you would lift up your eyes, that you would gently do that, look to Christ in this moment, that you would somehow give him glory by just looking to him in the waiting, but most importantly, that you would hold on to hope. Because there's two ditches we can fall on as we navigate our faith through depression. One is triumphalism, where it is, everything is awesome. And that's not faith, that's denial, dressed up as faith sometimes. So no, things aren't awesome. Things are crap and tough and you're depressed. Um, But the other ditch is absolute despair and melancholy. I'll never rise out of this. There is no hope. And so I think to navigate this with Jesus well requires um, a faith that's deeply and brutally honest and holds on to hope and still looks to God because we are a community of faith in Jesus, of love, but we're also this community of hope. And what is hope? Hope is imagining a future that's better than your present current reality. That's what hope is. And this is a community of hope. And I'm preaching this morning to say you can have hope in Jesus, that your current experienced reality day to day, that there is a future that's better than your current experienced reality, particularly if you're going through depression, because God is here and he's with us and he wants to lead us into places of human flourishing. Not easy to do. It doesn't happen overnight, as Rachel Hunter said, but it will happen as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So as I navigated through my own journey with depression, there were a number of things I found incredibly helpful. And I want to talk about four of them. There's a lot of wisdom and research into depression today. And I want to say out front, I'm not a doctor or a psychologist. I'm a pastor. So I'm not going to talk about medication because that is not my lane. Uh, I'm not going to do any deep dives into psychopharmacology. Talk to your GP. I've got no issue with medication. Like, just, that's not my lane, okay? I'm not going to go there. Um, but, um, but here's, so when I got into this kind of depression, I was like, there's a number of things I want to do. And the first thing I was like, that's, uh, I'm, I want to get wisdom. Proverbs, which is this kind of great celebration of wisdom, um, you know, is scattered throughout these, this kind of 
statements like this. The beginning of wisdom is this. I love this. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Okay. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. So, so the tricky thing when you're going through depression is you don't have a lot of gas in the tank to do some stuff. But this is where, again, I'm being part of a community of faith and turning up to these environments is helpful because the, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit is there and can give you your daily bread, can give you grace for today to help you have just a modicum of energy to begin to walk towards a hopeful future. And so for me, when I got low, there was this thing of like, man, I, I've just got to, I can't just accept this. I'm not going to accept this. There was something in me that was like, nah, man. I don't want to live like this. And so I was like, oh, well, I'm going to get some wisdom. One of the most helpful books I've, uh, I read um, is a book called Lost Connections uh, by um, an author called um, Johan Hari, not a Christian atheist guy, um, which made the book more epic for me. <laughs> I'll explain why in a second. Um, but this amazing book called Lost Connections, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope. I can't overstate how helpful this book was for me. uh, Johan Hari is an incredible researcher. He wrote a book that I read last year called Stolen Focus around why it's so hard to pay attention these days because of a whole bunch of reasons. But brilliant researcher. Um, And he had battled with, with severe depression in his life. And then, so he then just channeled his, like, genius at researching to go, like, what's the causes of depression? Uh... Like, so he interviews in this book the leading experts about what causes depression and anxiety and then what solves, what are potential solutions to these things. And he learned that there are scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. I'm not going to go through them. Literally, there's a sermon in every one. But here they are on the screen. Um, a disconnection from meaningful work will cause you to be depressed. A disconnection from other people. A disconnection from meaningful values. Disconnection from childhood trauma. A disconnection from status and respect. A disconnection from the natural world disconnection from a hopeful or secure future and causes eight and nine are the role of genes and nine is brain changes. So this is like the scientific data. These are experts. This is the scientific method worked out in terms of what are the causes of depression. Um, Nine causes of depression that he could identify. And the fascinating thing for me was only one of them was to do with the way your brain is functioning. That really surprised me. It's there, but it's only one of nine. Um, so here are the areas of our life that can either lead us to depression if they're not present or under-cultivated, uh, and conversely can lead us to a flourishing life when they are cult- cultivated. So as I'm reading this book, I'm like, oh man, this is helpful. <laughs> and I, again, I felt like there was some hope on the horizon to use that song. I was like, oh, um, for two reasons. Firstly, I had to eat some humble pie, everyone's favorite pie. Like, literally everything to do with life in Jesus seems to involve starting with eating the humble pie. Have you noticed that? Like, you find life, you've got to get used to eating humble pie if you're following Jesus. And we are such a proud culture. We are so proud. It's one of the things the Lord really needs to deal with in the Western church and the New Zealand church. Without a doubt, we are so proud. We have to get, I'm now a massive fan of altar calls. And we're going to have one today, friends, because it's eating humble pie. It's good for your soul to say, I need Jesus. I need some help. And so anyway, I'm in some humble pie as I'm reading this because I'm like, oh, no. I could just start identifying a couple that were just seriously underdeveloped in my life. I was like, oh, no. That's, that's, that's kind of me. You know, well, one of the interesting things about being a pastor is that you can actually be surrounded by people but super isolated. I had to like work on that one. 
Um, but the, so like, firstly, there was some hope there, but it was some humble hope. But secondly, my soul soared because as I looked at that list, I was like, man, um, like this is this is actually like just really good theology. <laughs> like all this stuff is a biblical worldview. Jesus banged on about all this stuff. Literally all of it. I mean, I could preach sermons on all of it as to why this is what God invites us into. I mean, the first one, uh, meaningful work. From Genesis 2 before the fall, God puts man in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Ben Witherington, a phenomenal scholar, said it's perfectly clear that God's plan from the beginning always included human beings working, or more specifically, living in a constant cycle of work and rest. Go to the next slide. So again, I could like I could preach a whole message on that. Here's two books. If like if that's you, you're like oh man, I haven't. Like often we like want to get value from our work. Jesus helps us bring value to our work. Da 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 da. So um, disconnection from other people. Um, it's interesting in this book. He's like they're tracking like people's engagement with community, and they can do that with some some data. Sorry, go back. No, not yet. You're ruining my sermon, bro. Calm down. Um, <laughs> Though that was, he's trying to be on it. Um, so, but, but they track all the data. For example, like in the, in the States, they can track bowling leagues, like people turning up to go bowling together, and they can just track the number of people engaged with bowling groups. And it's been in free fall since 1985, where everyone's bowling on their own now. Like they've just got all this data about the fact we live in this super disconnected world. And I'm like, well, what does Jesus want to do? He wants to place us in family, in community. And the funny thing in this book, they're like, the most healthy thing for your mental health is to be part of a diverse community, people that see the world a bit differently from you. And then they're like really struggling to think of examples about what those sort of communities are. And I'm reading the book, and I'm like, Joe, you little atheist, it's the church. The church is exactly the sort of place where you get all these weird people that get together. And half of them are really annoying because they see the world differently than me. And that's good for my mental health. Um, and so like on all these things, as you, as you kind of go through some of and I would encourage you if you're going through, uh, if you, you know, that depression or anxiety thing has been you, like to go through that book and, and all the rest of it. But I'm like, whatever it is, eat the humble pie and acknowledge you need some help here. And you can get help by going to a counsellor. I've literally been in therapy 10 or maybe 15 years out of my 20 years in ministry. You know, like we've just got to, eating humble pie is ringing up that counsellor saying, I need to talk, I'm a bit of a mess. And like I've just, I've got to the point now, I'm ringing up counsellors before I hit rock bottom and I'm a complete mess. I'm just getting, I've just normalised the fact that that's a healthy thing to do. Um, you know, uh, you could... Uh, Joseph will have a book. Like, I feel as a pastor, I'm just a chemist prescribing books half the time to my church. And Joseph's a great chemist. And he'll be like, you name the thing on that list that you're struggling with. And Joseph will be able to give you a handful of books that will be helpful for you because a good theological house will help you. It won't, it's not a complete fix. You've got to have both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, so you've got to put it into practice. But a good theological house built well is good for your mental health, particularly if you live it. So all of these things are super, super helpful. So that was the first thing that really helped me. I pursued wisdom around the causes of depression, read some books, helped me get a lot of clarity and helped me get a pathway forward. I'm going to be briefer on some of these other points. The second thing, uh, and this is tricky when you're depressed, but it is community. Uh, this Charlie Maxey's got this beautiful book called The, the Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. It's a little uh, movie now on um, Apple TV as well. And I love this line. What's the bravest thing you've ever said? Asked the boy. Help, said the horse. Asking for help isn't giving up, said the horse. It's refusing to give up. 
Now, this isn't easy, but it is actually the bravest thing you can do, is to tell some mates, is to ring a counsellor, is to make it known that you're actually struggling. The Bible calls us as a community to share each other's burdens. But I can tell you as a pastor, it's so hard to share a burden if I don't even know you've got it. Like, actually, we have to share the burden with someone for that burden to be shared together, but that is what we're called to as a community. And, like, we have these fears that, like, you're going to burden the other person, make them depressed. No, you're not. (laughs) It's a privilege to hear when someone opens up their heart and shares what's actually going on. Again, we've got to get used to eating the humble pie. The, The tactic of the devil is to isolate us. It always has been. And everything when you're depressed wants to keep, like, you just want to isolate yourself so badly because you don't have the energy. But the bravest thing you can do is say, I need some help. Like most of our pain that we have to process comes from hurt that we experience in relationship. But most of our healing comes through relationship as well. Most of our healing comes through relationship. Jesus with skin on, people that hug us, that listen that pray for us. And so, um, again, this is why I'm so grateful that we do not navigate this stuff on our own. We have the Holy Spirit who helps give me the courage and the strength to be brave and ask for help. The second thing, oh, that's not, third thing, I think, wisdom, community, yes, third thing uh, that's been incredibly helpful for me has been to practice gratitude. Um. Now, the interesting thing is that we live in this world that kind of trying to help, was trying to help us get depressed um, by mainly just being super discontent with our life. Like we uh, today will swim through 6,000 to 10,000 advertisements. And like, what's an advertisement trying to do? Just tell you that your sheets aren't that good? I don't wake up floating on a cloud. Oh, my sheets suck. <laughs> but I don't earn enough to buy the fancy sheets. My life's lame. Like That's literally how the capitalistic society works. Breed discontent so that you buy some stuff that you don't really need, right? So it's super hard to be stoked with your life when everything you swim in is trying to breed discontent. Like, of course we struggle with depression. It's like, you know... And the thing is, it's so hard to see because we're just used to it. So it's just literally the water we swim in. This classic thing of like these fish swimming through water and this other fish swims past them. It's like, how's the water today? And I keep, and this, this fish keeps swimming past and the guy looks at his mate's like, what the heck's water? So like we, just, we just don't even know we swim in this stuff and it's forming us. And so uh, that lie you'll be happy if you have this, like we know it's not true, like, I got this at some point, the iPad, that I've been fantasizing about. Do you remember when that first came out? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can read the newspaper. Just, yeah, you know, and then people started preaching from them, and it was like, wee. And I'm going to be so happy if I have an iPad. But I'm a pastor and go to the board. Can we work enough budget to get me an iPad? You know, it would be amazing for me. I can work from the cafe, you know, get the iPad. I'm going to be so happy. And you've got, like, the post-purchase thrill for all of two days. And then it's like, and now we're bored witless. You know? Like, we know it doesn't work, but we're still swimming that water of discontent all the time. So hard and... 
So I, I, had, I had to just start practicing gratitude. Now, the Bible's filled with like the exhortation to practice this. Ephesians 5.20, give thanks to God the Father for everything. Instagram, coffee, all these things we've already thanked the Lord for today. Uh, in the Bible, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Colossians 3.15, I love this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Like, don't be long for that. To which indeed you're called in one body. And be thankful. I love this Philippians 4, you know, classic scripture. I know what it is to be in need, and I want it to be plenty. I love this. I've learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, while well, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or plenty or in want. I, this, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, that last one, we know that scripture. I can do all things who give me strength. The context is to be content. It's not to win a boxing match. It's like, so like, Paul recognizes this as a mission, but he's like, I can actually do all this which is to live a deeply content life. I can actually do it. And if it was tricky for Paul in his day, how much more challenging is it today with the waters that we swim in? But we can live a life of contentment. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, I have deep dived into this scripture. I've read all the commentaries. I've sat with this for, years, I reckon, 15 years, just going deeper in this one. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is a, is a, um, is a phenomenal passage of scripture. Um, commentators call it the standing orders of the church. It's like, like, you know, what's God's will for you? Don't you want to, you know, it's it's a big cry about God's will for my life. And it's like, well, like there is a specific, you know, maybe I'm not sure how that works in terms of like your thing. But in terms of the general will of God for you, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So I'm reading these sorts of things and I'm like, Man, how like, I've got to live this because I'm like depression. Like it's not like a it's binary for me. It's either I do this and live, or I don't do this, and who knows where I end up? I shudder to think. So I'm like, I've got to take this seriously. So I start practicing gratitude, real simple, but initially every day, and now years years later, uh, at least three times a week, I write down things I'm grateful for in my little journal. And I can't overstate how helpful it's been for me. Powerful spiritual discipline. And, uh, like, phenomenal. Now, initially when I started, it's like, thank you for my wife, thank you for my kids, thank you for and then like, And tragically, I'd hit, like, four, and then I'd be like, thank you for the chair I'm sitting in. You know? And it's like... Because I was like really underdeveloped at living a grateful life, like scarily. And I just chipped away at that practice. Doesn't happen overnight, but it will happen where the Bible says, Romans 12, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that's like cognitive, that's what therapists call cognitive behavioral therapy. Change the neurological pathways, change how you're kind of wired in terms of your thinking. It doesn't happen, I mean, it happens though. And this for me has slowly transformed how I see the world. Where swimming through all the adverts and all that sort of stuff, because of this practice in my life, I'm, my brain is getting wired now to look around and just be like, that's awesome. I love that. Or isn't that a great song? Wow, that tree is unreal. That painting is 
absolutely breathtaking. To be just present to the abundant goodness and grace and beauty of God. I mean, you've got a pastor that's brilliant at teaching to the concept of having a sacramental worldview. Like the grace of God manifest in this glass of wine, in this beautiful steak, in this wonderful song that's just maybe wasn't Christians that wrote it, but man, what a testament to the work of God and the creativity of God. And, and like it has helped me cultivate a soul that is increasingly filled with wonder at the goodness of God. Like it's filling my mind with his goodness. And like that doesn't mean like I'm sounding very inspiring right now, aren't I? Or Tony Robbins and me's having a little go team, you know. I still have my absolutely, I have my days still that feel flat and are tough. But this practice has has been incredibly helpful. The tricky thing on this one and on any of the stuff I'm suggesting is that for a long time in the Western church, we've had this idea that information will help change us. And it will, it'll help, but information doesn't change you. We've thought that information will equal transformation in the church. With like the right sermon, the right Bible study, you know, and that's a lot of society's problem. Like, how can we fix a solution? We need more education. No, no problem with information. Super important. But here's the thing. Resonance does not equal obedience. So you can sit in the room today and be like, I so resonate with that. Oh, gratitude, it's such a good idea. Resonance means jack squat. Jesus was super explicit. It's the application that will bring the transformation. Information can bring revelation. That's super helpful. That's where it begins. But it's the application that brings transformation. And that is one of the major issues in the Western church is that we're focused predominantly on information when Jesus brought information and then very clearly brought the application. The Sermon on the Mount is bookmarked with, if you do this, you're building your house on the rock. Blessed are those who put the stuff into practice. Pockets throughout all of his little mini teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, he'll give application points. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the classic you know, thing learned, story we learned in Sunday school, you know, build your house on the rock. How those who put my words into practice are the people that build their life on the rock. So Jesus is saying in that little parable, the storms of life will come. The difference between how we navigate the storm is how much we have put into practice in our life. And so when it comes to depression, I know it sucks and I know it's tricky and you've got zero gas in the tank, but I'm telling you application is everything in terms of walking into the hope that Jesus wants you to walk into because he will not force his will upon you. You have your free will still. He simply invites you to learn his way and his way leads to life. And so I had to eat a lot of humble pie on this stuff. Uh, and when it came to practicing gratitude, I was like, I cannot just think about it. I can't like the idea. I have to do it. And it has been so helpful for my mental health and for um, the, the health of my soul. And lastly, uh, one of the things that, that, that was incredibly helpful for me, and I continue to practice this, is the concept of a rule of life. 
Now, uh, I did a whole sermon on this uh, two Sundays back, um, so uh, if you're bored next week when Joseph's prattling on, just tune into this, because uh, there's literally a whole sermon on like, rule of life and a little download on our thing that you can have if you want to, um, if you want to just have a little thing that will help you do this. But basically, a rule of life is simply a schedule or set of practices and relational rhythms that make space for what Jesus calls abiding. It's like, how can I organize my life with Jesus at the center? And so this has been a practice that's been part of the church for thousands, thousands of years. You could argue it goes right back to, to Nazarene vows and stuff in the Old Testament. It's been part of the church's framework for a long time. And John Mark Comer explains what a rule of life is in his book, A Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which has been helpful. He says, a rule was a schedule and a set of practices to order your life around the way of Jesus in community. It's a way to keep from getting sucked into the hurry, busyness, noise, and distraction of regular life, a way to slow down, a way to live into what really matter, what Jesus called abiding. Don't let the language of a rule put you off. The word rule comes from the Latin word regular, which literally means a straight piece of wood, think ruler. But it was also used for a trellis. What's underneath a thriving vine it's a trellis, a structure to hold up the vine so it can grow and bear fruit. So I, um, I found, um, I've got that as number three, it's number four, classic. Anyway, sorry, just distracted there by my ineptitude. Um, so this helped me in terms of like, you know, I was thinking about this last night as, as I was thinking about preaching this this morning, and I was like, would I want God to have just healed my depression in an altar call? And the answer is No. Because my depression helped me walk into a far more mature lifestyle centered around Jesus. And basically, and I hope, like, I think the Holy Spirit helps us. I was like, I just, I'm sick of it. No more. You know, you get that. This is crap. I don't want to live with it anymore. And then what I'd do is I'd make a rule of life. And I used to call it Sam's New Man Plan. I was like, this is, this is crap. I can't live it. So I was like, I've got to fix some stuff here. Like, I'm just not exercising, and all i is just sitting around in Burger King feeling depressed. This is not going to help me get out of depression, you know? I mean, I love the barbecue bacon cheeseburger as much as the next guy, you know? And to this day, it's just a part of my life. But it's like, you know, you know, on the way home right now, I'm mentally going down the chicken, mate, get one on the way home. But it's like, but that's not help me. Get on my fat butt and get out of this tricky spot. And so I'll be like, so I've got to just make a new schedule. I've got to have a rule of life that actually has got some healthy and holy habits in it. And failing isn't, failure isn't like I'd try that and then muck it up because I just, of course I did. I'm not Tony Robbins. I'll get a new rule of life and then a month later I'll be crap again. But failure is just not giving up. So I'd, basically, the reason I've got some degree of mental health today is because I was like, stuff it. I'm never, ever, ever going to give up trying to faithfully follow the way of Jesus. That's number one. Mental health and all that is downstream from all of that. Like, I'm just never going to give up. When I do something super stupid, I'm going to dust myself off, and I'm going to run to the one who can make me clean. My sin's going to propel me towards God, not away from him. I'm going to keep choosing Jesus. That's it. Stuff it. Screw you, devil. I am not going to give up. Of course, I fall off the wagon all the time, but I'm going to get back on that frigging wagon. New rule of life. And I've just kept doing that. And I tell you what, how many years now? Six or seven years now, probably seven or eight years now, into just consistently doing that, it starts to stick. 
And it's like I, every summer now, I've got a new write a new rule of life, um, and it, and and again, just top tip. So I don't do dramatic changes, just little things that I'm going to improve on on these. And so, and every year now, it's like just a little bit. This year, I've got to work on my exercise, you know. And I'm like, I do fits and starts, but I'm not consistent. And, and that's that's the best one, of the best antidepressants there are. I go for a run, do all this and stuff. And so. Uh, I'll have a rule of life. Now, uh, for it to be a rule of life, it needs to be shared in the context of community. It's not just a personal little thing in your diary. Uh, you can do this in your diary, find whatever, but I'm sure it'd be helpful. But for it to be a biblical rule of life, it's shared in the context of community. So we do this in our church. Literally on Tuesday night, our leadership team this year just shared our rule of life together uh, as a leadership team. Uh, our church throughout our small groups and all that sort of stuff, we've just introduced it this year. It's been bubbling away in the background. But this year, uh, you know, we did our vision series. And I'm like, I don't just want to have a vision. I want us to live a vision. So a rule of life helps us live a vision together for us to be a community orientated around the way of Jesus. And so we share that sort of stuff. And sharing that just brings a gentle form of accountability into my life where people are part of my journey. Again, I mean, the hum- I'm just used to eating that humble pie now uh, where people are helping me walk into wholeness so that I can have healthy and holy habits. My journey with depression will be something that I just have to always keep an eye on. So I share all this stuff, not living in the victory this morning where I'm like, I'm also- man, I've got to watch it. Um, but... Th- Without a doubt, I'm feeling so much better than I did seven or eight years ago when I got in a real pickle. Um, and it's, an, it's a long-term journey. Uh, but I want to land this morning uh, by taking um, communion, uh, leading us in communion. Um, but also, uh, to give the opportunity, I'd love um, to give the opportunity, if you want prayer for this morning, um, to respond and to um, eat some humble pie. Um, because there's nothing magical about responding for prayer, but it's an outward sign, like baptism or communion and all this. It's an outward sign of an inward decision to orientate my life around the way of Jesus. There's something very powerful about that physical response. Um, and as I've been praying about this morning, obviously, if, um, if you've been either affected by depression because of someone you love's going through it and that's tough, or you yourself are, are battling with depression, we'd love to pray for you. But also this morning, I just felt that just God's heart for you, if you've just been carrying some, a heavy burden, I just felt this thing the Lord just wants to meet people that are just feeling a bit weighed down and just come and he just wants to love you and minister to you and breathe life into you. Um, I finish... I don't. I'm circling the runway. Um, The power of... This is John Swinton again from his book. The power of the incarnation is God's empathetic movement into the suffering of the world in order to, A, reveal a solidarity that we were not aware of before, a solidarity he's with us, and B, to share in human suffering in a way that gives hope to the pain of death and suffering and love and create streams of possibility even within the most hopeless of situations. God has come, and therefore there are streams of possibility even within the most hopeless of situations. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So what I'd love us to do is, as we finish this morning, I just would love us to... to Um, let Jesus minister to us just where we're seated as I read through Psalm 23. Love just to give us a little reflection on Psalm 23 and then uh, I'm going to invite you to the table 
If you would like prayer, then why don't you come up to this table and remain standing after you've taken communion and we can pray for you. Now, if you just want to hang out with Jesus um, and you don't want someone praying for you, then just gently say, bug off, and we will, we will go, okay? And it's just between, don't no, say it a bit nicely than that probably, unless you're really depressed, whatever, fine, say whatever you want. But like, um, just, just if you want to just be you and Jesus, that's fine. Um, but otherwise, we'd, you know, what, what can we pray for? How can we bless what God's wanting to do in your life right now? And we'll just pray for you. So let's um, take a moment just to be conscious that God is in this place. Maybe you um, want to close your eyes, take some deep breaths. Just be, be present to him this morning as we read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He's my shepherd. He cares for me. He's guiding me. All that I need, I have in him. Here we are, we're safe, and we're well fed, and we're warm, and we're dry. I have God with me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There is a control over my life but it's the control of love and wisdom. And he leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul. Come, Holy Spirit, just refresh our souls this morning. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. He's before us, behind, below us, above us. He's guiding us even when his footsteps are not seen. He's with us. Even when we navigate through dark, dark times. Because even though I walk through the darkest valley, even through depression and anxiety and grief and loss, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We are not alone. His presence is not the same as feeling God's presence. He's with us when we feel him and when we don't, but he's with us this morning in this place. And even when we don't see them, his rod and his staff are there guiding us, and we just keep walking with God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Even in the presence of these things that have caused us pain and perhaps are causing us to feel like we aren't flourishing. We are so grateful that we still have food today. No matter what happens, we have a table before us. And our life is actually full of good things because of his goodness. And surely your goodness, God, and your love will follow me all the days of my life. Yes, we pursue him. Yes, we seek him and we want him. But even more, his goodness and his love follow us. Goodness and mercy will continue to pursue us wherever we are as we just wait and receive. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's stand together as we come to the table this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your loving presence with us this morning. 
And Lord God, I pray for every person here that they would be filled afresh with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you would embrace them in your love. And Lord, I pray particularly for those who have depression uh, or someone close to them is going through this, that you would especially embrace them afresh this morning. They would lift up their eyes and just know that there's hope on the horizon. They would give you glory, Lord God, in the waiting. They would hold on to hope. And in the name of Jesus, I speak hope into your soul afresh this morning. In the name of Jesus, where hope has been lost, I speak hope into your soul that what you're experiencing today is not what you will be experiencing in two years' time or in a year's time, but the Lord is going to lead you into places of human flourishing as you not just hear the word, but as you do the word, as you apply it to your life. And I pray for some of you that feel a bit overwhelmed about what the next step is, that this morning the Holy Spirit would fill you with strength and wisdom so that you would know what it looks like to live well today, that you would have grace for today, that you would have strength for today, that you wouldn't be concerned about the long-term journey, but today you would make choices that honor God and that you would walk into to the flourishing life that God longs for you to have day by day. He is faithful he is good, and he is with you. And so as we come to the table this morning, we come to the table of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we remember a body broken for us. We remember uh, that his blood was shed for us. So I invite you to come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to come, you who have much faith and you who have little you who have followed faithfully and you who have tried and failed. Come this morning with your joys. Come this morning with your sorrows. Come as you are, for there is always a space for you at this table. Come to where heaven and earth overlap, the table of the Lord, and receive the life of Christ as your own. In Jesus' name, amen. Just in your own time, if you want to come and respond, and then if you want prayer, then feel free to stay out the front, and we'd love to pray for you. Kakiti.